when you have this idea of things going right, it really isn't about what I think is right or what someone else thinks is right. And then that second principle is that delivering recurring impact is what creates recurring revenue, or rather recurring revenue is the product of delivering recurring impact. And so I have to be as invested in my client's desired outcomes as I am my own goals. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Aaron Hill, He's the SVP of Growth Strategy at the Arbinger Institute. Aaron has worked across sales, RevOps, and as a revenue leader, various companies, as well as uh, winning by design. Welcome along, Aaron. Lovely to see you today. I know that you're sharing some of your time, some of your family time with us today to talk all things revenue. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh, happy to be here. Uh, lovely to see you, Lee. And yeah, excited to share some time with you and talk about this stuff. Perfect. So as I kind of gave a very simplified version of, I know you've had a really interesting career to get to where you are now. And I know, Arbinger, you're working on some really interesting projects at the minute. So for anyone that isn't aware of you or the work that you've done in the past, could you just give us a little bit of a background on your story and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, sure thing. So when I was a late teenager, I decided that I didn't want to work for like an hourly wage that I really wanted to have control over my own income. So that's why I got into sales uh, was to just kind of control my own destiny and make whatever money I wanted and never have anybody tell me how much money I could or couldn't make. And so I've had an interesting career. I've sold everything from tuxedo socks to landlines to lodging for well-service companies to tech software. I've also sold consulting services. And I've been a consultant and it's kind of led me to where I work now at the Arbiter Institute. Most of the latter part of that journey has happened in the last few years. I worked for a VC backed, it wasn't really a startup anymore, they were 12 years old, called Huddle, which sold video technology for sports teams. And uh, right around the mid part of 2020, I was asked by our COO, Matt Mueller, to do a reorg of our team. At the time I was the director of revenue operations. So I'd been a sales leader for a long time went into operations to train and to use my kind of competency around systems to help scale things. And he said, hey, can you create a centralized business ops team? And so I did. And everybody who reported directly to me, there were three folks that did. They were all ready for their next big thing. And I just found there really wasn't room for me in the organization anymore. So I actually wrote myself out of the org and uh, was offered kind of a generous, like, hey, goodbye, Severance. And they bought all my shares back. And so I had the opportunity to go into consulting, and that's when I worked for Winning by Design. And I consider Jocko Metterkoy a mentor. He took me under his wing, taught me a lot about his models and his methodology, and challenged me to really embrace them and to apply them to my work. And I did. And he found it good enough that he entrusted me to lead the revenue architecture class as the first ever instructor besides him at teaching that to the masses. So I taught that class to Pavilion community for a very long time, uh, a couple of years. 
as well as a bunch of other private clients. Insight Partners would frequently invest in that as well. And so I had an opportunity to work with a ton of different VC-backed startups, trying to input these models into their organizations, teach them how they apply, and help them grow. And that actually introduced me as one of my students to Cameron Cousins, who's the CRO at the Garbager Institute. He basically fell in love with me immediately, wanted me to come work there. I told him he probably can't afford me <laughs> as far as I was at <laughs> that stage of my life. But I'm happy to, you know, talk to you about whatever it is you need help with. Told me about the organization. I was like, yeah, it's too small for me. You definitely can't afford me. But I'm happy to provide feedback and guide you along the way. And it got to a point, this is last summer, a little over a year ago, where I realized that no matter how much money I was making, I wasn't really fulfilled in my work. And even though I learned a ton of stuff that's helped me be a top performer everywhere I've been, I'm just not getting the joy out of the work that I wish I was. And I read a book uh, that Cameron had shared with me, and it really changed my mindset in a lot of ways about the work that I do in a career and the way that I think I can have an impact on the world with the skills that I have. And I just started thinking kind of outside of myself uh, for the first time ever and decided to take a leap and go work at the Arbinger Institute and lead their sales organization. And so we're taking everything that I've learned over the years and that I taught in revenue architecture class and applying it to our model to really build a sustainable and scalable growth market, go to market engine at the Arbinger Institute. And so far, so good. Uh, we may have been trying to get to 20 million for eight years before I got there. Couldn't do it. Finally, when I got there, they did. We're on pace to grow a little over 50% this year from that, that mark two and a large trajectory in the future as well. So it's working. Hopefully it continues to work. <laughs> Nice. And well, before I start to dig into some of those numbers there, what was the book that you read that changed your perspective? Yeah, he shared with me a book that's actually written by the Arbinger Institute and some of the original founders of the Institute called Leadership and Self-Deception. And it's a very different take on leadership than, than I've ever read. It's very self-reflective, very humbling, and it's written in narrative form uh, versus it being like a business book. So it allows you to see yourself in the characters in a lot of different ways. Although the characters are all based on real people and real experiences that occurred, it is written in that way as a fictional narrative. And it's just very humbling. And so it causes you to think very differently about, man, the way that I work with people, the way that I think, it is not as good as it could be. And it challenges you in pretty profound ways to be a better person. Nice. We'll definitely put a link to that down in the show notes. And I'll check out myself and let you know what I think. Yeah. So... To get into it then, with the role that you've gone into, you know, you kind of allude to it, that's a bit too small, you guys kind of fall, love that. But but obviously now you've gone into it, you're seeing, is it 50% kind of growth from where you were? Would love to understand to begin with, one, just a bit of context around Arbinger and, and what it is that you do and who you serve, but also what the sales function looked like when you first joined. Yeah, so I'll start with where it was because I think talking about what role I play now is more of a what we thought would be a solution to some challenges that we observed. So I came in and their sales organization was split into what they call practices. That's it's in forms of segments, basically. There's a corporate practice, uh, which we expect to divide more than just private sector corporations, right? There's a lot of different ways you can carve that out into various industries. But at the state of maturity of the business, that's where they were. And then where they'd seen the most growth historically was in the federal government. And so they had three federal government practices, one that was specifically the Department of Defense in the United States, one that was even a subset of that, the federal health care practice, which focused on the Veterans Administration and the Department of Military Health Care. 
And so those are two segments that it owns. And then we also have the rest of the federal agencies in the United States, like the IRS, uh, Department of Interior, State Department, things like that. And so all of those had kind of grown on their own. And then we had one more segment or practice, which was state and local governments, so not federal governments. And then we also have an international practice that covers really all of those subdivisions, but not based in the Americas, primarily in EMEA and things that are east from there. And so those are the six different groups that they've had up to this point. There were no sales leaders per se. It was always like a player coach structure where the managing director, they had their own target and they also had peers, just a couple of account executives or client success managers that worked adjacent to them and helped to bring in business. So they kind of partly managed them, but really had their own targets. And that's mainly how it was structured. The business itself was a training and development organization primarily. And so we sold training workshops and coaching services to different organizations that needed those things, primarily built around the intellectual property that the Arbinger Institute owns. and. So coming into the organization, I saw a few key barriers to scalability and growth. One, that there's no one actually dedicated to managing others. They're all player coaches. And so there's a a constant struggle on whether or not they should focus on their own book or focus on the book of their team and help them and empower them. So we saw evidence of that. We also saw in some of the practices where they didn't have uh, support. It was just the managing director by themselves that they were just swamped working 60 to 80 hours every single week, drowning in leads and struggling to follow up with everyone and just feeling miserable about what they were doing. And so that was unsustainable. And we didn't have much like dedicated operational support. So we didn't have like a client success function that was supported with operations or enablement. We didn't really have robust sales enablement or revenue operations of any kind. And they were just starting to move in that area. And so some of the bigger changes that we made were to make more of a matrix organization and then position ourselves for scale. So we made all the managing directors, well, we invited them to become just dedicated managers and not have their own book. And everybody accepted the invitation to do that. Then we brought in more individual contributors to report to each of them based on a growth model that we had built ahead of time to determine based on union economics, how many people we would need for each of those practices to reach the individual practice targets. And so we built that team out. We also dedicated enablement resources to support the team. We brought on some data analyst support as well. We didn't really have any marketing that was what we would think marketing should look like. They were very much on the creative side and just kind of supporting the product creation. And now we're very aggressive in demand generation. So we brought on a CMO who brought in her own team of about a dozen folks. Uh, to help us with account-based marketing, to help us create content that was more consistent and reliable, to build marketing systems to track leads and to incorporate automation in a lot of ways to make these more scalable. So a pretty significant investment in go-to-market overall that created a more matrix organization, but one where people had a lot more support and no one else is having to work 68 hours desperate for free time, (laughs) feeling like they're drowning. Everybody's got a pretty consistent and capable workload. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. 
That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. So just a few changes in the uh, in the last 12 months then. A few things, yeah. <laughs> and I'd love to, I think there's many different ways that we could pick on from that, but what I'm really interested to know is from your previous experience, what were the principles really that you were bringing into some of the changes there? So I was getting a sense of an alignment behind a single book as you refer to it as good to understand what the book is is like a playbook or but yeah interested to know kind of what those overarching principles are that you follow to organize uh the organization quite literally in that way yeah there's two i say that guide most everything that that i philosophically believe in terms of like operating in this space one is like really understanding what business to business means in a world where individual contributors own their own book they often think of themselves as the business. Like I have a relationship with this client and they also often refer to the client as the person that they work with most frequently. And where I think that falls flat is frankly, they aren't alone on this side of the transaction, nor is their client alone on their side of what they're doing. We have an entire team of support that's going to own this relationship and hopefully last longer than your individual relationship with this person, because it is business to business. It's the Arbinger Institute and whatever the client organization is that is actually the relationship that we're managing here. And so teaching the team that you don't have customers, Arbinger has customers, no customer is one person, an organization is full of a bunch of people that help things go right. We need to have multi-thread across all of these so that that individual relationship isn't the linchpin that we can make or break the relationship on, but rather we have all of these different layers uh, interwoven that help this relationship go right. And I think that's an actual interesting transition point. When you have this idea of things going right, it really isn't about what I think is right or what someone else thinks is right. And then that second principle is that delivering recurring impact is what creates recurring revenue, or rather recurring revenue is the product of delivering recurring impact. And so I have to be as invested in my client's desired outcomes as I am my own goals. And when I take that on, I'm truly having a profound and deep relationship with that client organization in a sense that like, it doesn't matter how much money they pay me. I measure my success on their ability to achieve the outcomes that I committed to when we went into, went into business with each other. And that requires a very profound level of understanding of their organization. And it also requires a level of commitment that I think a lot of businesses are failing and unwilling, frankly, to give to their clients where their goals matter like my goals matter. Oftentimes, we like objectify them in a way by saying, hey, you're a vehicle to me growing or you're in the way of my growth or you're irrelevant to my growth. And so I don't really care about your outcomes unless they get me what I want. And the way we try to position things is, no, their impact is everything because that's the very reason we make revenue is because we're delivering it to them. So revenue is a byproduct and we got to focus first on impact. And so that business to business mentality of it's not person to person, it is truly the organization Arbinger is committed to their organization, as well as this idea that the relationships really predicated on our ability to impact them positively and deliver those outcomes. And then the revenue we get is what they pay us in exchange for that. That's what I think creates 
a scalable and sustainable business that doesn't depend on any one person to be successful, but is really the foundation of the two relationships in B2B. So I'd say that those things kind of unpack everything else. Really love both points. And I'm going to pick one to dive a little bit further into. This is really interested around your point on like uh, delivering that recurring impact to generate the recurring revenue. So was it a case where you were adopt changing your process in any way in terms of how you delivered that impact? Or was that something that you were doing anyway? So I guess what I'm trying to get into here is how do you define that within the confines of how you guys operate? And how do you go about ensuring that you are delivering impact for a for a new client? Yeah, that's a, such a great question. So at the Arbinger Institute, they teach a lot about how we should understand those that we work with. We should adjust our efforts to be more positively impactful, and then we should measure our impact. And I observed that as I got familiar with the, their intellectual property. What I also observed is that we didn't really do that with our clients. <laughs> there wasn't an actual assessment of how we were impacting them. And we weren't really adjusting much about our efforts going to market accordingly. And so some of the bigger changes that we instituted were, one, we have to find and define a way to measure our impact on our client organizations. And so we took that very seriously. We actually developed a specific function in our business that does measure the impact that we have. We created different constructs on assessments that our clients can take that help us to know, hey, are they understanding and seeing evidence of improvement in these categories? And we measure that along the course of the engagement. The other big difference is that we went from a, a mindset of events to engagements. In the past, Arbinger would conduct workshops that typically lasted two days. And you could come to the workshop publicly and your experience lasted two days at the Arbinger and it was kind of over. Or your organization could have a two-day workshop that we would deliver to you. And what you did with the information was really up to you and how it ended up creating impact to your organization was entirely on you. And one of the biggest fundamental changes that we made to be focused on delivering recurring impact is, look, we can't just be in there for two days and gone and not care what happens to them afterwards. Like we've got to make sure that they truly are able to implement this work into their organization to see the impact uh, over time. And in fact, we should be measuring our own success on their ability to do that not just on did we have a workshop and a bunch of people showed up and how much money did they give us, but rather, hey, is that investment that they've made of time and of energy and of capital yielding the return that we committed to them based on implementation? Because if it doesn't, we're not succeeding no matter how much money we make. And that was a significant shift, so much so that we created all new solutions and packages for our clients that changed from a two-day engagement to yearly engagements they're less about subscription and more about, look, we are invested in you on a repeated cadence to ensure that things are going right. And we're, we're doubling down on the investment of client success because we know that is what drives recurring revenue. It's not having a subscription model and it's not us just forcing people to auto renew. It's actually being present and being engaged and delivering that recurring impact that makes them want to pay us because they always are feeling the value that we provide as we work with them consistently. And that was a big shift. Are you able to share like within that context of how you were able to do that? And, and what I mean is how you were able to capture uh, like the value that they take away from it. Because I know in like a software world, you know, we can measure things like adoption of certain features. How much are you using it, for example? Um, but we'd love to understand how you guys measure it. Yeah, so we're fortunate at the Arbinger Institute that we do have like a software portal that people can access. 
So even though currently those licenses are not on subscription, they're, they're not perpetually, they're just kind of indefinite access licenses. We can monitor usage and engagement and things like that. And we've learned a lot as we've done that more intentionally. But there's also the matter that the access to the portal itself doesn't create outcomes. And I think this is something that a lot of SaaS companies forget. Like just because someone's using your tool doesn't mean it actually works for what they're trying to do or that it works as good as it could work for what we want them to achieve. And so we've got to measure not only how is engagement with our information on our digital portal enabling those outcomes, but more importantly, what are the outcomes we're trying to do anyway? And how do we measure against that? So we also create project trackers for the entire engagement inside of Asana, where we look at, hey, how are we engaging with them? How are they using things? What are all the tasks we need to complete to ensure this is done right? And then you know we use those assessments to measure along the way. But we also as part of kind of our discovery process before we engage with the client, we align around a metric that we're going to be leveraging. For example, Winning by Design, they have this SPICED framework, which is about the situation, pain, impact, critical events, and decision criteria that are involved in, in all that stuff. Impact's critical for us at the Arbinger Institute. So what we need to do is find out, hey, what are the challenges that you see, be it conflict, attrition, whatever, but what are the real qualitative and quantitative impacts that that's having on your organization. Why does attrition hurt you? To what degree does it hurt you? What does it cost your organization to go through this? We dive in, we capture all this information, and that is our metric that we use. In fact, we had a client recently report back to us that in the two years since they began their engagement, they were able to reduce first-year attrition by 40% by implementing some of the things that we've done. This is in a hospital system. And that matters to us because it says, hey, yeah, if you're saving now $4 million a year on healthcare or staffing costs because of a lack of first-year attrition you've experienced, they didn't pay us $4 million for what it's worth. They got a significant ROI on that investment. And so that excites us because there's real impact, but it also proves the value of the work that we do to them in real dollars. So we try to assess those things as early as possible, and we hold ourselves accountable to delivering the impact that was promised. Yeah, what I love is it completely makes sense. And as a marketer, that speaks to me because as soon as you talk about it, I'm like, oh my God, fantastic case study, right? Of, of what it is that we do and the value that we provide for our customers. Now, something that you were touching on earlier around relationships is such an interesting one to me because, and I'd love to get your perspective on it, like relationships from a sales perspective, it's a given. Everyone knows that quality relationship can be the thing that unlocks a deal or recurring revenue over time. They're so incredibly important, but they're also very hard to control, right? To your point that you made earlier, there's no way really of being able to understand that relationship or to make it predictable in any way. So I'm very curious to understand from perhaps from your experience and certainly how you're working with your team now, how you go about ensuring that you are multi-threading deals and ultimately building better relationships with your client. Is that something that you can, that you're doing via training and really like foundational sales training? Or is it something that you can measure, measure against and actually take more of a data-driven approach to? Yeah, it's definitely both. So we're intentionally starting with a multi-threaded approach where we're going account-based to the organizations that we want to have a relationship with. Uh, we never begin with a single touch point. There's always going to be multiple people that we're reaching out to that are all key stakeholders typically in a strategic engagement with the Arbingers too, whether it's learning and development professionals, strategic human resources leaders, talent management, whether that's in the HR form or individual managers of frontline people, even employee relations, public relations, legal teams, 
all of these folks are impacted by the kind of problems that we try to solve. And so we make it a point that our top of funnel, like our SDR team, is always finding multiple points of contact within the organization that they approach cohesively. And then as we kind of reach that critical mass of, yeah, there's some consensus around these problems that we want to solve that they've acknowledged, that's when we consider our opportunities really qualified. Without consensus, we don't think that they're qualified because one person wanting something isn't the same as an organization deciding that they need something and putting a lot of prioritization and momentum behind it. And so we begin with that. We do train a lot on this. And one of the things that we train is actually more of a homegrown model. Uh, one of the Arbinger Institute's kind of philosophies is called the influence pyramid. And we use it as kind of our structure for our sales process as well, which I really love. And we've embraced and brought a lot of our best practices and, and aligned with that. But it's this philosophy that if I want to influence someone, I have to be doing that first by seeing them fully as a person. So I can't just assume that they're, oh, I need an HR person to agree. Otherwise, the deal's not going to get done. So I got to talk to the HR person. That can't, can't be on my approach. It's got to be, look, I know who what this person's name is. This is Sam Johnson. They're the HR leader. This is what they think about every day. This is their team. This is what they're surrounded by. This is where they came from. I need to have that level of understanding so that I can see them and imagine what it's like to be them. Then if I want to engage this person, the next level up on the pyramid, and, and it's less time as I go up, but hopefully I'm doing it well, it's who are they influenced by, right? Like, where are they going for information? Who do they trust already? I got to connect to those people too, whether it's in the organization or a community they're a part of. And I need to do that because if I want to have an influence over them, I got to go where influence already exists for them. And only then can I build a relationship. But I don't build a relationship through telling them things or correcting their mistakes or showing them where they're wrong, which is unfortunately, I think, where most of us spend time in relationships. I've got to build a relationship by listening and learning and experiencing what it's like to be them and seeing that. And then as I spend enough time building that trusted relationship by just hearing them, giving them the place to speak and for me to listen and actually caring enough about them that they're willing to share that, only then are they open to any kind of teaching or invitations that I would give. And so we try to teach our team that for every new thing they're asking someone to do or change, there's like nine times that amount of effort or time allocated to just seeing and understanding that person as an individual person. So we spend a lot of time with our team teaching them how to be first and foremost considerate human beings because people sense that. It's like, Lee, you know, if I'm a person trying to get something from you, no matter what I say, you know, that's where I'm at. You can see that and sense that. And people do. So if I'm coming to you trying to sell you something, no matter what I say or do, that's going to be observed. But if my intent really is lead to help you as a person and to be a positive impact in your life, no matter what I say or do, they're also going to sense that as well. And they're going to be far more receptive to being influenced. And so we teach that and we help our team embrace that as part of our process. Do you think that's applicable to any sales team, you know, no matter the industry or whoever they're selling to? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think what I've observed, and I still consult, right? So there's still a lot of organizations outside the Arbinger Institute that I'm advising and helping along the way. And what I've observed is salespeople, like me when I started, care most about their own wallet. They want to get wealthy. They want a path. They have this scarcity bias and mindset of like, I need money, so how do I go get it? And everybody sees through it, right? So they feel that. They feel like they're being objectified. No matter what you sell, even if I go back to selling socks on tuxedos, one of the first jobs that I ever had in sales, I can do that in a way that says, hey, I'm going to make $5 commission on every pair of socks I sell. Or I can say, look, 
if these people don't get socks, they're going to be showing up at this wedding wearing white socks, looking like Michael Jackson when every other groomsman is looking like someone who is supposed to be there. They're going to be embarrassed. They're going to feel awful. They're going to be the story that people talk about laughingly afterwards. That's going to be terrible. What is it like to be them? And how can I help them see that making this investment is something that's going to be a differentiator long into the future that they're probably not thinking about, but I think about every day because this is the world that I live in all the time. That is a fundamentally different way of approaching sales that I think everyone should lean into because when you help someone in that way, it feels good versus just feeling like I'm getting paid. Yeah, it feels great to win deals and get paid, but that's not permanent. You're going to spend that money and then you're going to forget about it. But helping someone lasts forever. And I know it sounds very altruistic and friendly, and it's not. Like, I'm still going to get paid, and it's going to feel really good, but I'm doing it in a way that's truly helpful. And I think any organization can do this if they're really focused on delivering value. It leads me to the golden question then, and you kind of asked it there, to other revenue leaders and RevOps or sales listening to this who are probably listening to this going, yeah, I've got that problem right now where, you know, I've got one or two, or depending on the size of the business, you know, 10, 20% of my reps are capable of doing that and the penny has dropped perhaps because of experience over time or they are just got a, a knack for it. And I've got another 80% of my reps that just don't get it. They do just want the flashy car and a flashy watch and whatnot. Overgeneralizing, I appreciate. But for them, how would you recommend that they go about helping that 80% to see it and to understand this is a better way of doing things? And this, as much as it doesn't feel like it right now, will help you to have a few nice watches and a few nice cards and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the most important things that we need to, as a sales leaders, train on is that we're not convincing people to give us money. I think the, the biggest thing that we've seen culturally is you watch all the old movies, the classic films about sales and investment, Wolf of Wall Street, what have you. It seems like they're convincing people to give them money but you'll notice that they're all transactional in nature. And the only people who are good are just incredibly skilled at manipulation. And that's hard. Like, and you can't build a team around like the 1% of skilled people. You got to build a team around normal people that can do normal tasks for a reasonable amount of compensation. And so instead of trying to find the 1% and build your team around those champions, teach the core that, look, they're going to pay us when we're delivering the impact that's worth compensation. It's not something you convince them to do. It's something that you help them see for themselves. So teaching your team that like, look, the more conversations you have so long as those conversations are about teaching people how they can get the outcomes they want, that's what's going to result in them winning deals. If they're doing that in a way that's like, hey, my goal is to help you get where you wanna go and I'm just a medium to help you get there, but my time is valuable, so I gotta spread it out across. That's okay. People recognize that time is valuable. What they don't want is to be one more person that the salesperson is trying to take advantage of. And so it starts with the leaders. Like we got to share that that revenue is a product of recurring impact and get your team to believe, look, they're not buying you. They're buying the outcome that they want that comes through your ability to help them get there. You're not convincing them of anything you're helping them get what they want. That's what they're paying for. Then they'll shift their focus from trying to convince people to actually help people. And that's what pays the bills. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, 
we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. Perfect. Aaron, we've talked a lot about a lot of the things that are going really well right now. And I want to flip the table and ask you, what is a challenge that you're working on right now that you're trying to solve? Yeah, this is so great. So at Arbinger, you know, we wanted to bring in people that were familiar with our work so that they could speak confidently about what we do uh, when we scaled our team up a little bit. And I think one of the areas that we are looking back on wishing we would have done differently is we didn't hire a lot of professional salespeople who've been doing this a really long time, who have those chops, or at least who know what it's like to grind every day in the sales environment, which I know because I've done it for 20 plus years, but not everybody who hasn't done it knows what it's like. And what we're seeing is that this team, a lot of the team that isn't having the same degree of success as their peers, although they're doing fine, they have less confidence in their own ability because they've never really proven it the way that they would have liked to see, or even in comparison to their peers. They also are, they're too focused on the company kind of providing them a path to be successful. And I think companies do have a responsibility in enabling their teams, like make no mistake, but it is a two-way street. At the end of the day, the street can be paved, but you got to drive it if you're a salesperson. And so there is something about teaching people what it's like to work, but work in a good way that we're having to work through right now, helping the team see, look, if you want to work eight hours a day, that means you got to get eight hours work of work done in eight hours. And that's a lot. Like there's a certain amount of things that you got to do. You got to research for a certain amount of time. You got to prospect for a certain amount of time. You're going to have some internal meetings you got to account for. There's a certain amount of calls, emails you got to make. Like you got to do this work so that you can get to the outcome that you ultimately want, no matter how kind or outward, as we say you are, that only is going to take you so far as the volume of activities that you actually are doing. And so I think we're having a unique challenge in a sense that like, unlike most sales teams who do hire grinders who know how to work, but don't know how to work in the most effective way. We've got a team of people who know the right way to work, but they just don't know how to do it to the extent that they probably could to achieve the kind of results that we all want them to have. And so we're, I'm having to train them how to sell and have to work in a sales job, which is unique. And I think it's an area as we continue to scale in future years that we'll probably pivot our hiring profile a little bit uh, just to take more into account. Hey, do we want to lower that or shrink that learning curve so that we bring in people who like me know how to sell, but Maybe you're huge jerks and are super self-focused that we can help them see, hey, you, there's a better way to do this. Here's what you can do instead and have the kind of same kind of experience that I've had of going about things a different way. Yeah. What are some of the ways in which you're approaching doing that? Are you kind of going back to like the foundations of selling or are you taking some of your learnings working at places like Wingle by Design before into that into terms of how you're doing the training? Yeah, we've taught a lot of, for example, Winning by Design's material, like everybody's been trained on it in our company. I'm a big believer in what they teach and train on. So we took them all through that. I've also got a lot of my own stuff that I've taught the team to help them be more effective. Effort is really where we've seen struggle across some of our team is that they just don't know how much effort they should be exerting or how much volume of things they should be doing. And we're trying to set better expectations there for them to do that. It's also, if you've never done like an SDR's job where you've never knocked doors before, you don't know how awful it can be to be rejected 99% of your day. <laughs> and it can be demoralizing and it can break your confidence. So if you're not prepared for no on every touch point, 
you don't really enjoy the yeses as much and you often never even get to them. And so teaching our team now how to have those conversations, not take them personally, but just keep moving forward because eventually it's going to resonate is where we're spending a lot of time. And that requires not just role play, but really just shadowing, like being with them on the calls, making the calls with them, showing them what we're willing to do, that we're willing to get on the phones too. So it's not like do as I say, not as I do, but we'll actually show what it's like. And so I think it is important for sales leaders to demonstrate that they understand and have lived that life. And if they haven't, get your hands dirty, go do that life, see what it's like to be a salesperson and be rejected 99% of your day and see if you still got the smile on your face. Because if you do, that's great. Then it's a model for others. But if you don't, you'll have a little bit more compassion on what it's like to be them. And maybe we can think differently about how we can do it in a better way. Yeah, I like that. I have seen it suggested of go, uh, particularly in regards to the SDR role, just go and do it for a day. See what it feels like. And, uh, you know, even from a marketing perspective, obviously, assuming that the SDRs aren't reporting into you, I've kind of looked at it and it's like, I get it, right? Because you're actually talking to people that actually you can get some incredible qualitative feedback back from them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a fantastic job to see where the market is in the moment, but it is hard. And there's no question it's tough to be rejected constantly. Absolutely. Well, here's a slightly easier one. And final question for you, Aaron. Sure. What is one book that you'd recommend to other revenue leaders and the folks listening to the podcast? Yeah, we talked a little bit about leadership and self-deception before. I'd, I'd certainly recommend that book for anyone. It is written by the Arbinger Institute. So unfortunately, this sounds like a plug and I'm happy to give a different book if that's helpful. <laughs> Go on. I'd say the other book I'll recommend if it's okay to just to give to. Sure. I'm still a huge believer in like the Challenger sale, but there's a book that followed that about the client experience. And I am a huge believer that focusing on the client experience is focusing on sales. And so Matt Dixon, you know, he's written some tremendous books. There's the Challenger Sale, there's the Challenger Customer. But the Effortless Experience by him is the book that I would recommend for anybody, whether you're a salesperson or in client success or client support or even in marketing. It just helps you get a lens of how to actually help people get the outcomes they want as fast as possible. And it's data-backed. So it's a tremendous book I'd recommend for anybody. Amazing. Aaron, that's a great way to really so finish off the circle from where we first started talking about the, the, the really the impact that you're delivering. Really love the recommendation. And Aaron, thank you so much for your time. For, for anyone that's been listening and wants to reach out, maybe they've got any questions, where can they find you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily. Aaron Hill, I post quite a bit just about what I'm going through, what I'm seeing. You can also go to the Arbinger website, which is just arbinger.com, learn a lot about what we do. We talked a lot about Winning by Design. Don't work there anymore, but always happy to plug them. Winningbydesign.com is a great place too. And you can always find me connected to Revenue Architecture as well. But any one of those ways is great. Beautiful. I'll make sure that we include links down to all of those and your two book recommendations I'll allow on this occasion. All right. Thank you. Aaron, thank you so much again. Thank you so much for your time. And to everyone that's listened this week, catch you next week. Thank you, Lee. Take care. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.